Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This time, we have part two of Peter the Painter. And, well, if time will allow us, we'll mention some of the other crazy Latvians as well. Now, last time, we made it through all the way from Peter the Painter's emergence as a crazy revolutionary anarchist up to the point where all the other anarchists who had escaped from Latvian territory of the Russian Empire had come together in the UK and they're about to do some more expropriation and mischief. Last time, well, we ended up with three robberies from jewelry stores, which were done by basically drilling a hole in the roof. This time, well, we'll get to the most famous crimes of the gang and the eventual fate of Peter the Painter himself. Enjoy, comrades. Already in the December 16th, 1910, a gang that was now formed by Peter the Painter, and led by him, and Jakob Peters, George Gardstein, Fritz Svars, Jorka Dubov, Karl Hoffmann, Sara Tresionsky, Nina Vasilieva, John Rosen, Max Smoller, and William Sokolov, attempted to break into the rear of Henry Harris's jeweler's shop in Houndsditch from 11 exchange buildings in the cul-de-sac behind about which the Daily Telegraph reported, quote, Some two or three weeks ago, this particular house in exchange buildings was rented, and there went to live there two men and a woman. They were little known by neighbors and kept very quiet, as if indeed to escape observation. They are said to have been foreigners in appearance, and the whole neighborhood of Houndsditch containing a great number of aliens and removal being not infrequent. The arrival of this new household created no comment. The police, however, evidently had some cause to suspect their intentions. The neighborhood is always well patrolled. Shortly before 11.30 last night, there were sounds either at the back of these newcomers' premises or at Mr. Harris's shop that attracted the attention of the police. A neighboring shopkeeper, Max Vale, heard their hammering, informed the City of London police and nine unarmed officers, because, well, they mostly were unarmed at the time in London, arrived at the house. Sergeant Robert Bentley knocked on the door of 11th Exchange Buildings. 
The door was opened by Gardstein, and Bentley asked him, Have you been working or knocking about inside? Bentley didn't answer him and withdrew inside the room, mostly because he couldn't understand English. Bentley pushed open the door and was followed by Sergeant Bryant. Constable Arthur Strongman was waiting outside. Quote, The door was opened by some person whom I did not see. Police Sergeant Bentley appeared to have a conversation with the person and the door was then partly closed. Shortly afterwards, Bentley pushed the door open and entered. According to Donald Rumbelow, the author of The Siege of Sydney Street, quote, Bentley stepped further into the room. As he did so, the back door was flung open and a man, mistakenly identified as Gottstein, walked rapidly into the room. He was holding a pistol, which he fired as he advanced with the barrel pointing towards the unarmed Bentley. As he opened fire, so did the man on the stairs. The shot fired from the stairs went through the rim of Bentley's helmet, across his face, and out through the shutter behind him. His first shot hit Bentley in the shoulder, and the second went through his neck, almost severing his spinal cord. Bentley staggered back against the half-open door and collapsed backwards over the doorstep so that he was lying half in and half out of the house. Sergeant Bryant later recalled, quote, Immediately, I saw a man coming from the back door of the room between Bentley and the table. On 6th of January, I went to the city of London mortuary and there saw a dead body and I recognized the man. I noticed he had a pistol in his hand and at once commenced to fire towards Bentley's right shoulder. He was just in the room. The shots were fired very rapidly. I distinctly heard three or four. I at once put up my hands and I felt my left hand fall and I fell out onto the footway. Immediately, the man commenced to fire Bentley, staggered back against the doorpost of the opening into the room. The appearance of the pistol struck me as being a loud one. I think I should know a similar one again if I saw it. Only one barrel, and it seemed to me to be a black one. I next remember getting up and staggered along by the wall for a few yards until I recovered myself. I was going away from Cutler Street. I must have been dazed, as I have a very faint recollection of what happened then. Constable Ernst Woodhams ran to help Bentley and Bryant. He was immediately shot by one of the gunmen. The Mauser bullet shattered his thigh bone and he felt unconscious to the ground. Two men with guns came from inside the house. Strongman later recalled, quote, A man, aged about 30, height 5 feet 6 or 7, pale thin face, dark curly hair and dark mustache, dressed dark jacket suit, no hat, who pointed the revolver in the direction of Sergeant Tucker and myself, firing rapidly. Strongman was shot in the arm, but Sergeant Charles Tucker was shot twice, once in the hip and once in the heart. He died almost instantly. As George Gardstein left the house, he was tackled by Constable Walter Choate, who grabbed him by the wrist and fought him for possession of his gun. Gardstein pulled the trigger repeatedly and the bullets entered his left leg. Choate, who was a big, muscular man, 6 feet 4 inches tall, managed to hold onto Gardstein. Other members of the gang rushed to his Gardstein's assistance and turned their guns on Choate and he was shot five more times. One of these bullets hit Gardstein in the back. The men pulled Choate from Gardstein and carried him from the scene of the crime. So, Peter the Painter, Jakov Peters, Jorka Dubov and Fritz Svars half-dragged and half-carried Gardstein along Cutler Street. Isaac Levy, a tobacconist, nearly collided with them. Peters and Dubov lifted their guns and pointed them at Levy's face, so he let them pass. For the next half an hour, they were able to drag the badly wounded man through the East End back streets to 59 Grove Street. Max Smoller and Linda Vasilyeva went to a doctor who they thought might help. He refused and threatened to tell the police. They eventually persuaded Dr. John Scanlon to treat Gardstein. He discovered that Gardstein had a bullet lodged in the front of the chest. Scanlon asked Gardstein what had happened. He claimed that he had been shot by an accident by a friend. 
However, he refused to be taken to hospital, and so Scanlan, after giving him some medicine to deaden the pain and receiving his fee of, well, called 10 shillings, left, promising to return later. Despite being nursed by Sara Tresionsky, Gardstein died later that night. The following day, Dr. Scanlan told the cops about treating Gardstein for gunshot wounds. Detective Inspector Fred Lequensley and Detective Sergeant Benjamin Lesson arrived to find Tresionsky burning documents. Soon afterwards, a Daily Chronicle journalist arrived, quote, The room itself is about 10 feet by 9 and about 7 feet high. A gaudy paper decorates the walls, and two of the three cheap theatrical prints are pinned up. A narrow iron bedstead painted green with a peculiarly shaped head and foot faces the door. On the bedstead was a torn and dirty woolen mattress, a quantity of bloodstained clothing, a bloodstained pillow, and several towers also saturated with blood. Under the window stood a string sewing machine and a rickety table, covered with a piece of mole cloth. That occupied the center of the room. On it stood a cup and a plate, a broken glass, a knife and a fork, and a couple of bottles and a medicine bottle. Strangely contrasting with the dirt and squalor, a painted wooden sword lay on the table, and another, to which was attached a belt of silver paper, lay on a broken desk, supported on a stool. On the mantelpiece, and on the cheap whatnot stood, tawdry ornaments. In an open cupboard, beside the fireplace, were a few more pieces of crockery, a tin or two, and a small piece of bread. A mean and torn blind and a strip of curtain protected the window, and a roll of surgeon's lint on the desk. The floor was bare and dirty and, like the fireplace, littered with burnt matches and cigarette ends. Altogether, a dismal and wretched place to which the wounded desperado had been carried to die. However, another journalist described the dead man, and this is a bit, uh, well, creepy, quote, as handsome as Adonis, a very beautiful corpse. Which is, well, quite an interesting way how to, you know, talk about a corpse. The police offered a 500-pound reward for the capture of the men responsible for the deaths of Charles Tucker, Robert Bentley, and Walter Choate. One man who came forward was Nicholas Tomakov, who had been a regular visitor to the 59 Grove Street. He told them that he knew the identities of three members of the gang. This included Yakov Peters. On 22nd December 1910, Tomakov took the police to 48 Turner Street, where Peters was living. When he was arrested, Peters answered, it is nothing to do with me. I can't help what my cousin Fritz Svars has done. Tomakov also provided information on Yorka Dubov. He was described as 21, 5 feet 8 inches in height of pale complexion with dark brown hair. When he was arrested, he commented, You make mistake. I will go with you. He admitted that he had been at 59 Grove Street on the afternoon of 16th of December 1910. He said he had just gone there to see Peter who he knew was a painter, in an attempt to find work, as he had just been sacked from his previous job. At the police station, Dubov and Peters were identified by Isaac Levy as two of the men carrying George Gardstein in Cutler Street. The City of London police now issued a wanted poster with descriptions of two of the men, Peter the painter and Fritz Svars, that Tomakov had told them about. It stated, Fritz Svars, lately residing at 59 Grove Street, age about 24 or 25, height 5 feet 8 or 5 foot 9, complexion sallow, hair fair, medium moustache, turned up at ends lighter in color than hair of head, eyes gray, nose rather small, slightly turned up, chin a little upraised, has a few small pimples on face, cheekbones prominent, soldiers square but bend slightly forward, dress brown, tweed suit with thin light stripes, dark melton overcoat, 
usually wears a grey Irish tweed hat, red stripes, but has sometimes been seen wearing a trilby hat. I have to kind of applaud this whole idea that, at the time, the manner of the hat that you wore was definitely a completely identifying thing. And at the time, the police did not have the name of, well, our Peter the Painter, because they just literally knew him as this Peter the Painter, because we only found out his Jan Jacques identity, well, quite recently. However, they stated about him, quote, A man known as Peter the Painter, also lately residing at 59 Grove Street. Age 28 to 30, height 5 feet 9 or 5 foot 10. Again, about his complexion and stuff and stuff. Uh, again, about his black overcoat and everything. And um, this is fun part. Black hard felt hat. Uh, hats are extremely important. Rather shabby. Believed to be a native of Russia. Both are anarchists. The poster also included a photograph of a dead George Gardstein, who was described as age about 24, complexion pale, and again, at this point, nothing about the hat. The poster also contained information. The above reward of 500 pounds will be paid by the Commissioner of Police for the City of London to any person who shall give such information as shall lead to the arrest of these persons, or in proportion to the number of such persons who are arrested. So, this was, um... Quite a bit of a pickle. But Peter the Painter isn't stopped that easily. Hello there. Thank you for tuning in into another episode of The Eastern Border. We are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at Rusansov.com. If you're looking to buy new art, don't forget to use the code EASTERNBORDER for a discount on us. Remember, head over to Rusansov.com and happy shopping! If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to patreon.com or our website theeasternborder.lv to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Discord. And, as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. That's all from me now. See you online. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. On January the 1st, 1911, the police was told that they would find the wanted men in the lodgings rented by a Betsy Gershon at 100 Sydney Street. It seemed that one of the gang, William Sokolov, was Betsy's boyfriend. This was part of a block of ten houses just off Commercial Road. The tenant was a ladies' tailor, Samuel Fleischman. With his wife and children, he occupied part of the house and sublet the rest. 
Other residents included an elderly couple and another tailor and his large family. Betsy had a room at the front of the second floor. Superintendent Mulwaney was put in charge of the operation. At midday on the 2nd of January, two large horse-drawn vehicles concealing armed policemen were driven into the street and the house placed under observation. By the afternoon, over 200 officers were on the scene with armed men stationed in shop doorways facing the house. Meanwhile, plainclothes policemen began to evacuate the residents of 100 Sydney Street. Mulvaney had decided that any attempt to arrest the men would be very difficult. He later recalled, quote, The measurements of the passage and staircase will show how futile any attempt to storm or rush the place would have been, with two men dominating the position from the head of the stairs and where, to an extent, they were well under cover from fire. The passage at one discharge would have been blocked by fallen men. Had it even reached the stairs, it could only have by climbing over the bodies of their comrades, when they would stand little chance of getting further. Had they even done this, the two desperados could retreat up the staircase to the first and second story, on each of which what had occurred below would have been repeated. At daybreak, Detective Inspector Frederick Wensley gave orders for a brick to be thrown at the window of Betsy Gershon's room. The men inside responded by firing their guns. Detective Sergeant Benjamin Leeson was hit and collapsed to the ground. Wensley went to help him. Leeson's record is saying, Mr. Wensley, I am dying. They have shot me through the heart. Goodbye. Give my love to the children. Bury me at Putney. Dr. Nelson Johnstone examined him and discovered the wound was level with the left nipple at about two inches in towards the center of the chest. Winston Churchill, at the time the Home Secretary, decided to go to Sydney Street. His biographer, Clive Ponting, commented, quote, His presence had been unnecessary and uncalled for. The senior army and police officers present could easily have coped with the situation on their own authority. But Churchill, with his thirst for action and drama, could not resist the temptation. As soon as he arrived, Churchill ordered the troops to be called in. This included 21 Scots Guards marksmen who took up their places on the top floor of a nearby building. Philip Gibbs was reporting the siege of Sydney Street for the Daily Chronicle and had positioned himself on the roof of the Rising Sun public house. Quote, In the top floor room of the anarchist house, we observed a gas jet burning, and presently some of us noticed the white ash of burned paper fluttering out of a chimney pot. They were setting fire to the house, upstairs and downstairs. The window curtains were first to catch a light, then volumes of black smoke, through which little tongues of flame licked up, poured through the empty window frames. They must have used paraffin to help the progress of the fire, for the whole house was burning with amazing rapidity. Assistant Divisional Officer of the London Fire Brigade, Cyril Morris, was told to report to Winston Churchill, quote, As I arrived at the fire, I was met by the one of the largest crowds I have ever seen. Thickly jammed masses of humanity. It looked as though the whole of East London must be here. I had to force my car through a crowd of at least 200 feet deep in a small street, and as I emerged into the cleared space, I was met with a most amazing sight. A company of guards were lying about the street as far as possible under cover, firing intermittently at the house, from which bursts of fire were coming from automatic pistols. I was told to report to Mr. Winston Churchill as he was in charge of the operations. Morris was shocked when Churchill told him to, quote, Stand by and don't approach the fire until you receive further orders. Philip Gibbs described how the men inside the house fired on the police. Quote, For a moment I thought I saw one of the murderers standing on the window sill. 
but it was a blackened curtain which suddenly blew outside the window frame and dangled there. A moment later, I had one quick glimpse of a man's arm with a pistol in his hand. He fired and there was a quick flash. At the same moment, a volley of shots rang out from the guardsmen opposite. It is certain that they killed the man who had shown himself, for afterwards they found his body, or a bit of it, with a bullet through the skull. It was not long afterwards that the roof fell in with an upward rush of flame and sparks. The inside of the house, from top to bottom, was a furnace. The detectives, with revolvers ready, now advanced in Indian file. One of them ran forward and kicked at the front door. It fell in, and the sheet of flame leaped out. No other shot was fired from within. Cyril Morris was one of those who searched the building afterwards. We found two charred bodies in the debris. One of them had been shot through the head, and the other had apparently died of suffocation. At the inquest, a verdict of justifiable homicide was returned. Much discussion took place afterward as to what caused the fire. Did the anarchists deliberately set the building alight, thus creating a diversion to enable them to escape? The view of the London Fire Brigade at the time was that a gas pipe was punctured on one of the upper floors, and that the gas was lighted either at the time of the bullet piercing it, or perhaps afterwards, by a bullet causing a spark which ignited the escaping gas. The police identified the two dead men as Fritz Svars and William Sokolov. It was believed that Peter the Painter had escaped from the burning building. The bodies of these two men were then taken to Ilford Cemetery and carried into the church. When the chaplain was told of their identities, he expressed his strong disapproval of their bodies being brought into the church and said it was an outrage to public decency that they should be buried in the same ground as two of the murdered policemen. Later that day, they were burned in unconsecrated ground without a religious service. After this, police arrested also Jakob Peters, Miltien, Tjarnos, Klaivinch and Fyodorov, everyone who was connected to this flame group. The trial was a closed one, however, it also failed to prove their direct guilt. And most, including Yakov Peters, surprisingly enough, were actually set free. But the man who rented the Grove Street apartment where the gang planned the robbery and everything, name him as you will, Peter the Painter, Peter Pyatkov, or Jan Zhaklis, yeah, he was gone. Again. Apparently, people in the Britain should have learned the number one rule of Latvian anarchists. Never, never, never surrender. Last that we know of Jan Jacques, Peter the Painter, well, he was seen in Germany, 1912. Posters of Peter the Painter showing his photograph, which was made in the United States, yeah, they were spread all around London. And some even spread to other countries, including, well, Russian Empire at the time. Police, however, knew that he wasn't present at the scene of these haunted shootings, but Peter the Painter became an urban legend similar to the Jack the Ripper. According to 1932 MI5 report, Peter the Painter was hiding in Germany in some apartment belonging to some Wagner person. He also shared this apartment with another Latvian anarchist named Valdis, who later served at Canada Houseman Guard. Peter the Painter escaped the police search and made his way to Netherlands, apparently. He was reported to be in Brussels later on, but, you know... We really cannot guarantee that completely. After all, his comrades were dead, and his plan of starting up the revolution in Latvia had failed. He was on the run, obviously, and the Russian secret police reported to London that he was kind of hiding in Germany. The British police decided that they lacked enough proof to hunt him down and, well, didn't really do anything. At this point, Lyuba Milstein was pregnant from Fritz Svars when he died on the Sydney Street. 
Together with Alfred Zirkalis, she left for the United States and raised the son of Svars, named Alfred Driscoll, together. Jakob Peters remained in London and later returned to Russia and became a close associate to Vladimir Lenin. Yuri Slavinj returned to Latvia and was arrested by force. He was released in 1917 and not heard until 1926 when he was photographed in a 1905 memorial arrangement. Nothing more about him is known afterwards. Now, it's quite possible that Peter the Painter actually moved to Australia. Such options of, you know, randomly escaping from Latvia to Australia, yeah, they were popular at that time and, as we shall see, became quite popular even later on. The Australian police arrested three people in total from 1911 to 1917, whom they thought they were actually Peter the Painter. However, all of them were released because of, well, obvious lack of evidence. And it is known that some distant relatives of Janis Jacques or Peter the Painter, were known to live in Australia after World War II. Technically, they speculate that Peter the Painter could have possibly entered Australia as a disguised businessman, more easily passed naturalization tests. There, it's quite likely that he actually spent his rest of his life as an Australian businessman, with his wife, Lydia Schwarze. But, obviously, it is quite hard to guarantee any such predictions. So, what can we make from, well, Peter the Painter? Well, like I said, a lot of people in Latvia don't even know that he really exists. And he isn't a figure that we get taught in schools, but it's pretty interesting. I mean, sure, as much as Western audiences are concerned, his biggest issue was the the case of the Sydney Street Siege and all those murders of cops. I mean, at one point, Georges Simenon, the Belgian writer, he created his Inspector Jules Magret, who's a kind of a legendary figure in the annals of detective fiction, and the first time Jules Magret appeared was the strange case of Peter the Let, or Peter the Lafian, obviously. Which is a bit crazy, but hey, he was a kind of a person there, so that has spawned something in the detective fiction. However, it's still a bit strange, even even though he was a pretty dedicated anarchist and quite an evil person. I mean, if you kill so many people and organize bombings and fires and shoot cops then um, and robberies, then you're not a human being that I would want to be friends with. However, it's also very complex, and specifically even that we don't even know how he ended up. Maybe he just, you know, did some laying low or something. And his identity, like I said, is um, is a bit mysterious too. I mean, like I mentioned, right now, Roof had written that we have Jan Jacques, right? But it's still a bit weird because, for example, Police Sergeant Leeson wrote memoirs about this whole case and all these shootings, and he wrote memoirs in 1934. There, he stated that Peter the Painter's true name is Peter Pilans whose brother, Kazimir P. Lance, at that point, worked as a translator for the Thames police, and actually had participated in, uh, in the interrogations of the anarchists that had been arrested. And according to him, after the events in London, Peter had gone to New York, where Kazimir had joined him soon after. According to him, Peter P. Lance died in 1914 in Philadelphia. Now, other sources, however, claimed that um, 
Yaakov Peters was this Peter the Painter. Well, some of my sources, which were originally in Russian, but they were too crazy, also stated that it was Stalin himself for a bit, but that's just silly. And, uh, well, others say that maybe Peter the Painter wasn't actually an anarchist and a criminal, but someone sent in from Ochranka, from the Russian secret police. Also, some people at this point have stated that maybe he never even existed, that it's an invention by the anarchists, and they just named him to have, well, basically some sort of a hero figure that would be blamed for leading everything. But that also seems to be, well, quite a bit weird. But I guess it would be kind of fitting. Oh, also, another theory goes that this Jan Zaklis, whom we know as Peter the Painter, apparently had worked for the GRU under one of their early leaders. However, all these crazy theories, well, kind of seem fitting for a bizarre figure, like like Peter the Painter. I mean, in a way, it kind of reminds me of Stalin, you know, throughout the anarchism and whatever. Well, maybe Stalin could have been something similar to this, but again, well, remember the Tbilisi heist? That was pretty cool as well. But yeah, this, uh, well, this took a bit longer than I had expected. But, like I said, I have another bunch of episodes, I presume, on various crazy Latvians. For one, I would like to tell you about Fred Rebel, who definitely, that wasn't his real name, obviously, but that's a guy who traveled from west to east on a little boat over the Pacific Ocean. And then we have Alexander Lime, who was a completely crazy person that first reached the Angel Falls in Venezuela by foot, and he discovered, like, rivers there, named them after Latvian rivers, and apparently after his death, well, his friends had claimed that he had found some sort of a golden river with a lot of money, and he was called the Diamond King by the local native peoples, and after his death, under his small place where he lived, they found $20,000, so that's crazy. And then we have Ed Lietzkalnich, the guy who built the Coral Castle. Oh, and a person called Alexander Ziemel, or Sasha Ziemel, who hunted jaguars with handcrafted spears. There's a lot of, well, crazy people and all-around weird Latvians, and most of them really have been completely 100% tied to the revolution of 1905. Which again impresses me a lot because everyone just thinks about this second revolution, this one in 1917, but just bizarre to understand that most of our crazy Latvian people who've done something, well, in a sense magnificent even, something that has now been a bit forgotten, because like I said, we don't hear these names in our history classes, they've all come from this land of of period and time of, of this kind of this anarchist revolutionary movement against the Tsar. Weird revolutionaries, I guess, just, well, can't really be trusted to go silently. And again, the first rule of Latvian anarchists is to never, never, never surrender. But I think that more episodes on these weird Latvians will have to wait, as I have more tanks to look at. Oh, really, I did a lot of studying on the tanks, and I want to do some things about politics and a um, bit more conspiracy theories on Putin and one on Ramzan Kadyrov as well. I have to remember to make one on Ramzan Kadyrov. That's all going to happen in August. I still have my uh, fun episode to make and the webpage needs some updating. 
well, gonna be a busy month. The summer heat, however, yeah, the heat wave was pretty murderous and uh, kind of a scary thing. At any rate, thank you, and I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to visit theeasternborder.lv and leave a comment there or a like. You can support the show as well. Please, if you if you can, become our patron. People who are our patrons get all the episodes ad-free on patreon.com. You can follow us on social media. Check out Anna's YouTube channel as well. She does great stuff there. And in general, just hopefully you had a fun time. This was a bizarre episode to make, really, because, well, the British sources used the, well, kind of bit archaic English in a way, and the Latvian sources, oh boy. No, I should really, really write to our archives and offer to do a complete retranslation myself, because you might have noticed that I stumbled a few points there, but uh, what can you do? You expect that the official translation will be nice, but instead you start reading a sentence and understand that you're going to have to redo all the thing, because, um, yeah, someone just made such ridiculous grammar errors that uh, that it changed the whole meaning of the sentence. I hope that um, it wasn't too bad, and of course we're gonna do we're gonna do things better. But for now, well, wow, you gotta start thinking about the tanks. Thank you for listening, and the Sudanya, tavarish. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.